This is a CBC podcast. Hello, I'm Saroja Coelho, and this is Just Asking. On this week's show, we turn the week's news and latest trends into answers that help you make better decisions in your life. You can call us live on Saturday afternoon with the questions that are keeping you up at night. We'll hear you out, and with the help of our guest experts, we'll help you out. This is your chance to just slow down, call in, and connect today on Just Asking. Today is a giant step forward for our health system. It was made possible by two adversaries asking what we have in common. Ottawa unveiled its Pharmacare plan this week. You had lots of questions about what exactly it would mean for you. Our expert today tackles those questions. And in our second half hour. The reality is the majority of victims do not go to police or and do not go to formal supports. They go to their friends and family and colleagues. Intimate partner violence has been called an epidemic in Canada. If someone you know is caught up in an abusive relationship, do you know how to help? Our guest today has some specific pointers. This is Just Asking. Let's figure it out together. Today in the House of Commons, I was deeply proud to introduce an act respecting pharmacare. There's something very, very wrong when you actually have to go out and fundraise for one of these amazing devices to manage blood sugar. The people who are struggling to afford contraception would struggle to support a child as well. And someone might rightfully ask, why these two drugs? The federal government pursues a pharmacare program Alberta intends to opt out. So I'd be very curious to see what the alternative is and actually how it would be implemented. Earlier this week, the federal government unveiled the long-awaited Pharmacare plan. The first phase of the plan would cover some diabetes drugs and contraceptives, and there's still a lot that we don't know. We don't know exactly when people can start signing up or how the provinces fit into all of this. So to help us understand the new Pharmacare plan, we have Steve Morgan joining us from Vancouver. Steve is a professor at UBC's School of Population and Public Health. He is also a leading expert on pharmacare system. Steve, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you for inviting me to be here. Why don't I jump right in? You've been studying pharmacare systems for a long time. You've also been an advocate for a national drug plan in Canada. You were listening as the federal government unveiled their pharmacare plan on Thursdays. How were you feeling? You know, I, I think this is one of those rare times where you can truly say it, it's an, a historic event when the government commits in legislation to essentially fulfill this long overdue promised component of the Canadian Medicare system. So um, I was feeling quite good, quite optimistic that there's a lot of hope that we're going to move forward on this after waiting literally decades for it. But of course, there's a lot of hard work to, to do. There's a lot of work in getting the, the program implemented beyond the pages of a piece of legislation. What do you see as the biggest challenges there? What's the work ahead? If you could, if you could keep, uh, if you could look out between now and the next election, for example. Yeah, so between now and the next election, which could be relatively soon, um, I think the big thing is to make sure that these first two drug classes that are going to be covered, diabetes treatments and contraceptive medicines, are covered with um, really good quality, high uh, value procurement contracts, negotiated prices with manufacturers, but also making sure that the contracts 
uh, ensure that the medicines are available when Canadians need them. So making sure that there are security of supply arrangements in how we purchase those drugs uh, and getting it done quickly so that Canadians can see the value of being able to go to a pharmacy and show them their health card and getting those medications that you need for free. If you get that done quickly, I think that Canadians will understand the value of that kind of a system applying to all of their medication needs. But if we start with the medications that are covered here, diabetes and contraceptives, as you said, why did the government choose to prioritize those two types of medication over the many other options? Yeah, and so part of it is a clinical argument, but part of it is also a political consideration. Um, The clinical arguments are, for instance, diabetes untreated is one of the more serious conditions that you can have. Um, There have been many studies that have shown that inequity and access to diabetes medications in Canada uh, harm patients very significantly, indeed cause hundreds of premature deaths in Canada every single year. So there's a very strong clinical case there. As it relates to contraceptives, there's very strong clinical evidence that ensuring that women have access to contraceptive treatments um, as and when they choose to use them will uh, improve financial equity and equity and access to medicines, but also prevent um, uh, uh, unwanted pregnancies. So there's good clinical kind of arguments for that and policy arguments, but it's also good politics. Um, you know, these are categories of medicine that have symbolic meaning. Uh, women's health initiative around reproductive health uh, is important. That's a very important uh, statement for um, the, the progressive parties at, at the federal level. And diabetes is is uh, particularly insulins, you know, the category of treatments invented in Canada. So it is both tragic and ironic that Canada would be the only rich country in which uh, a significant swath of the population can't access those treatments. You were saying just a moment ago about how long the promises have been out there to come up with a plan like this. If we look at it, it, covering just two types of medication, does that meet the bar for what the Liberals and the NDP were promising Canadians? No, I, and I think it's important to recognize that this is just the beginning, the, the first step, and, and, and hopefully a step taken quickly and, and taken with, with due, uh, due diligence in terms of contract negotiations. But the legislation does spell out that the intent is to develop a national formulary of what's referred to as essential medicines. Um, This is a concept borrowed from the World Health Organization and international literature about medicines that are so valuable in terms of their demonstrated safety, efficacy, and value for money in health systems that the World Health Organization argues that access to such treatments is a human right, a fundamental human right. Um, So what Canada hopefully will be doing in the coming months is developing a formulary of such treatments that would probably be around 100, 150 different types of medications, literally hundreds of different products, but 100 to 150 categories of treatment, representing probably two-thirds of all prescriptions written in Canada. That kind of coverage, coverage of that kind of basket of essential medicines is essentially what has been promised uh, in, in recent years and was recommended by Justin Trudeau's Advisory Council on the Implementation of National Pharmacare as the first most important step in developing a, an eventually comprehensive drug program that would cover all medicines. 
I'm just going to turn to our listeners for a moment. If you're just tuning in, I'm with Steve Morgan. He's a professor at UBC's School of Population and Public Health and one of Canada's leading experts in pharmacare systems. Steve, uh, most Canadians have some form of drug coverage. A patchwork of private and public schemes are available. If this bill passes, how big a difference will it really make in people's lives? You know, it'll make a big difference in a, in a lot of people's lives, even if they already have coverage through a private or public drug program. And one of the reasons is the first stage of this new bill is to establish uh, essentially uh, no cost to patient access to the medicines that will be covered. So first dollar coverage, as it's referred to. And that means essentially you won't be paying co-payments or co-insurance or won't have deductibles in this program. It'll be just like Medicare as it applies to visiting a physician or going to a hospital. You know, under this program, if you need a medicine, medicine and it's covered by the program, it will be free of charge. The other thing that happens with this kind of program is that your employer and your union will no longer have to pay for those medicines that are covered under the plan through private insurance. So you'll see a significant reduction in the cost of your extended health benefits if you're a worker or a retiree with such benefits. And that can be really positive because unions and employers can reinvest that money. And we're talking potentially billions and billions of dollars in savings into other aspects of extended health, like mental health care, vision care, hearing care, etc. I want to go to one of our listener questions now. Alan McDonald reached us before the show, and he had a question about diabetes coverage. Just listen to this. Hello, this is Alan from Vancouver. Um, apparently, the plan will cover diabetes medications, and that's great. Uh, but will the plan cover medical devices for the treatment of diabetes? Uh, and I'm thinking specifically of insulin pumps, infusion sets, and continuous glucose monitors. I myself am a, have diabetes, and I started out, as, as uh, many people do when they're first diagnosed, on various medications. As often happens, the condition progressed so that I had to go on insulin itself. Uh, so it's quite an expense for me, I must say, um, every month uh, buying these various um, devices that are prescribed by my endocrinologist. So naturally, I'm curious to know whether it might be covered uh, in the new uh, Pharmacare plan. That is exactly the kind of question I imagine lots of folks have, uh, particularly people who are covered by the medications right now for, for diabetes. Steve, how would you respond to Alan's question? Uh, I think the response is to say that the, the government has announced that in, in addition to the commitments that they were making around the funding of medications for diabetes and contraception, they will be developing some kind of special fund to help provinces ensure that related uh, devices and test supplies will be available. So the details on that specific part of the program are not very clear yet, but I can tell you that you know, health systems around the world, particularly in high-income countries like Canada that have universal public health care, they do provide universal public coverage of related technologies for managing conditions like diabetes. So if it's not immediately going to be a benefit under this program, surely it will be in the you know mid to long term because no system would leave those important diagnostic and test supplies outside of the coverage scheme. Thanks so much for that, Steve. We have uh, Donald Pratz on the line. Uh, hi, Donald. Hi, good afternoon. Um, my, I'm a senior. Um, right now, uh, 
I'm covered 100% by uh, regarding 4,100 drugs on the market. And uh, it's been that way for since I turned 65, six years ago. And um, I'm, I'm very happy that uh, younger people are getting a chance to have uh, coverage when they can afford it, especially. Uh, but uh, my question is, um, in, in Manitoba, um, certain cancer drugs are covered by their plan currently. But in Ontario, um, we're not covered by some exotic medications for cancer treatment that may cost anywhere between 1000 and 14000 a month. Um, right? And so my question is, is that going to eventually be covered? Right now you have to apply through Trillium, go through a bunch of paperwork, and by that time the cancer has killed you. Um, so I wish Ontario would get it together a little better, uh, looking at Manitoba. But my question is... Uh, how long is it going to take to have uh, automatic coverage for some of these very expensive drugs that can save lives for seniors? What an important question, Donald. Thank you so much. So, Steve, that's the kind of question that we're really expecting to hear a lot of um, people in dire need of, of drugs that we're not mentioning yet. How would you respond to Donald's question? Uh, I would respond by, first of all, acknowledging that, in fact, you know, every Canadian, regardless of where they live and who they work for or what their age is, should have access to medicines of proven safety, efficacy, and value. Um, and that is something that we've heard from poll after poll and citizens' dialogue after citizens' dialogue when we talk to Canadians about what they want a pharmacare system to look like. The number one um, theme or principle that we hear is equitable access to necessary treatments across the country. Over time, as we demonstrate that a government-run program can secure significant savings on prices, we will then have the case to expand coverage for all such medicines of proven safety and value because buying in bulk as a country together is the way to essentially cover many more medicines at much lower cost than a fragmented system of different provinces doing different things and different insurance companies providing coverage for different people. Thanks so much, Steve. Donald, I hope that that offered you a little bit of a window into into some of what you're looking answer, looking for well, answers. Well, but it does. The future cannot come fast enough. Thank you. I, Thank and, you so and much. I and I must say, I, I agree. Having worked on this file for many, many years myself, um, we, we would like the pace of change to accelerate, um, and, we're, and we're hopeful. Right now, I think Canadians need to uh, tell the government that they're encouraged by the commitment to build this kind of program and tell the government to speed up its development. Well, that's going to be a very interesting next step. We'll, uh, we'll honor that. Thank you so much, Donald. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. So this is going to be the next next interesting step is to look at what the future, the road ahead is. But folks have a lot of questions about what it looks like for them now, particularly folks who already have part of that patchwork of private and public coverage. I want to play you a question from Esther Tululi, who reached out to us from Sarnia, Ontario. This is her question. My question is, my husband and I purchased private benefit insurance uh, because we don't have employer paid benefits. So... Do we need to cancel that in order to be covered by the new PharmaCare program? Steve, what do you think? Yeah, yeah, great question. And it's my understanding, although there will be an expert committee or a committee of experts providing guidance and advice to the government on these kinds of terms, but it is my understanding that the intent of what they call a universal 
uh, single payer system would be that this new plan will be the payer of first resort. You would automatically be qualified for coverage regardless of whether you have coverage elsewhere, which will mean that the premiums for private insurance um, can and should fall because the insurance companies will no longer need to cover those costs. So we'll have to wait for the details in terms of exactly what this is going to look like. But if you look at the spirit, I think, of the act, it is that this truly will be uh, the a universal plan, just like Canadian Medicare, at least for the drugs that will be on this national formulary, beginning again with diabetes and contraception. We now have Julie Larson on the line from Vernon, B.C. Hi, Julie. Hi. Hi there. So you have a question specifically about insulin. I do, yes. I've been on insulin for 60 years, and I'm doing quite well because I'm using all the leading-edge products, including insulin pods and blood sensors. But my question is about the type of insulin which will be covered for my insulin pods. Um, I would like to know if it's the generic brand only or if I will now be covered for the fast-acting version, which works best in my pods. What a great question, Julie. Steve, how would you answer that? Um, It's a great question. It's the kind of detail that we're going to have to wait to hear the answers about those specifics. In part, I think, developed with advice from the Canadian Drug Agency in terms of what will be covered under the these first steps of the program. Um, but those are the kinds of questions that need to be put toward a, uh, a committee of experts representing experts in medicine and pharmacology and health economics, but also experts or, or representatives of patients and public groups that uh, can help the, the government make these choices. So all I can say right now is we're, it's a wait and see situation. It does sound like that the intent was to cover a very wide range of diabetes treatment options, but those specific details will come out as the budget is revealed in terms of what they're what they can spend as a government or what they're willing to spend, and as the committees weigh the pros and cons of listing one medicine versus another. Julie, right. thank you so much for calling in. Okay, thank you. So not every province had the same response to the announcement on Thursday. I want to offer you a question, Steve, from Margot Charchuk, who is in Edmonton. Alberta's plan to opt out left her with a few questions about how it would affect her. Here's her question. My question is whether an individual or a family can still enroll in the National Pharmacare Program despite the Alberta government deciding to opt out. Thank you. Okay, Steve, so is it all in together or are there individual choices here? Yeah, this is a great question, uh, like all these questions. And I, the my first estimate of the answer to this is that it will depend on provinces cooperating. It'll, it will depend on co- provinces opting in. This is very much like the early stages of Canadian Medicare. It, and, and we know uh, back in the 1960s, provinces like Alberta and Quebec and, and to a lesser extent Ontario uh, opposed the implementation of Canadian Medicare. But the federal government put enough money on the table to give the provinces incentive to essentially cooperate and participate in the program. So we're going to have to look to see whether or not the federal government puts on the table sufficient funding for this new program that no province would walk away from it. Well, that leaves us with an interesting question, because if there's money to be put on the table, there's lots of opinions about how that could be spent. Would it be better to just give the provinces the funding to set up their own expanded drug programs? 
Yeah, absolutely not. And, and the reason for this is that the world market for pharmaceuticals is dominated by very, very powerful pharmaceutical companies, particularly the holders of patents on the relatively newer brand name medicines. Countries need to hang together in negotiations on drug prices in this world market. And indeed, we see countries in Europe and other places of the world trying to actually work together in joint negotiations across national borders to give them more strength in these uh, negotiations. Canada, surely as a single country, should leverage the power of buying in bulk on behalf of 40 million Canadians rather than fragment the negotiations to provinces, most of which have fewer than 5 million residents. Are you worried that the lower prices could discourage pharmaceutical companies from bringing new drugs to Canada? No, and it's a great question, but I have done a, a tremendous, a, a lot of work on researching this area. I've written systematic reviews of this literature, and we find that there's no evidence that there are systematic differences in medicines of true value in terms of being launched in different countries around the world. There are some cases where medicines of questionable value or questionable novelty might not get marketed in different countries. Most of that has to do with essentially the size of the country, not the prices that their governments will pay. But on the whole, medicines that are truly of value to the system, uh, to a healthcare system and to patients will get launched in every country. And we know this because countries like the United Kingdom uh, you know, pay uh, significantly less for medicines that, that, than Canada does, uh, but actually have just as many, if not more, medicines on their market and available to their patients. We have one more caller. We've had lots of questions about diabetes and insulin, but Debbie Rokan is calling from Brandon, Manitoba, and has a question about the different types of birth control that are going to be available through the Pharmacare plan. Hi, Debbie. Thanks so much for calling in. Hey there. Thank you for taking my call. What's your question for Steve? Hi, Steve, or hi, sir. Um, why I was calling is um, I don't know if you guys have any details yet, but as you would know, there's different types of birth controls available for women. Um, so there's the oral contraceptives that one would take daily kind of thing. Um, there's the injectables, there's products like Nuvarain, and there's IUDs of different um, uh, you know, uses. Regardless, will there be coverage for different modalities that way, or will it be specific, do you think? What do you think, Steve? So again, th this is something where uh, the announcements and the, and the discussion around this new bill suggests that the intent is to provide coverage for a, a range of contraceptive treatments, including IUDs and rings and injectables, as well as oral contraceptives. So we'll look forward again to the uh, advisory committees making decisions on the you know safety, efficacy, and value of treatment alternatives. I think the Canadian Drug Agency, again, will help with determining the formulary of contraceptive medicines that will be covered. But the spirit uh, and the language, certainly, of the press releases and supporting documents from the government is that this will be relatively comprehensive of a range of choices. Debbie, I'm so grateful for your call because that nuance of what's covered and what's not is definitely a big question for lots of folks today. Thanks so much for calling in. Thank you. 
I am speaking with uh, an expert in pharmacare, and uh, we are talking about the new pharmacare plan. Uh, Steve, as we close this out, um, I just want to ask you one last thing. I've just got a couple of minutes left. What was left out of the pharmacare plan that you had hoped to see? I think I would have liked to have seen a timeline and a slightly clearer commitment that the principles that seem to be applied to these first couple of categories of treatment, that is the diabetes and contraception, and those are principles of universal, national, single-payer, first-dollar pharmacare, I'd like to have seen a clear commitment that that's the aspiration for the essential medicines list that will be developed, and then eventually come, you know, when the, when the provinces and federal government are ready um, for medicines beyond the essential medicines, so we we can have the kind of pharmacare system that virtually every other high income country has outside of North America, because the, the the last thing we want is an American style system with private and public insurers jacking, inflating the prices of medicines up and ultimately creating a patchwork that is even worse than the system we currently have. Well, I thank you so much for helping us take apart some of this. It really is a lot to get into beyond the announcements. There's a lot of complication and it can leave people feeling incredibly vulnerable. I really appreciate your knowledge and, and all of your answers today. Thank you for having me. Steve Morgan is a professor at UBC's School of Population and Public Health. He is also a leading expert in pharmacare systems, and we reached him in Vancouver. If you want to call us with questions when we are live on CBC Radio on Saturday afternoons, the number to call is 1-888-416-8333. That's 1-888-416-8333. You can also text us your questions. The number for texts is 226 758 8924. And if you want to submit your questions online, go to cbc.ca slash myquestion. I'm Saroja Coelho. All of us need to better understand violence and what we can do about it and be positive supporters for people who are experiencing it. It was the first time that anyone had looked at me with actual concern. And she's like, this is abuse. And that was probably the first time I ever heard someone call it abuse. I just feel like our community doesn't have any outlet. Somewhere just to reach out to, like for friends and family. I was totally blindsided to all of this. It's just destroyed me. That last voice was Brian Sweeney. His daughter, Angie Sweeney of Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, was killed just this past fall. Her ex-partner, Bobby Hallert, shot her just days after she'd broken up with him. Hallert then went to a second location where he shot and killed the children that he had with another ex-partner. And there are families, friends, and an entire town just reeling from this tragedy. So that's setting the pace for where we're going next on today's edition of Just Asking. If someone you know is experiencing intimate partner violence, that might leave you feeling really helpless. And it's so hard to figure out how to help, when to help, where to turn, uh, where to go for help 
as you try to support someone and you try to do the right thing and say the right thing for the victim. Andrea Gunraj is the Vice President of Public Engagement at the Canadian Women's Foundation. She's joining us today to answer your questions about how to support someone who is caught up in an abusive relationship. This is going to be a really tough topic, but I hope that it'll offer you some really important answers that help you help someone else. So please take care while you're listening. Andrea, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me, Saroja. Let's start with the signs that you need to watch out for. How do you know that someone might be the victim of intimate partner violence? Well, you know, sometimes you just have a sense that somebody's going through something tough. You might see them feel a little uncomfortable when you bring up certain topics about their relationship. You might see them not really want to get into details. You might hear things that they sound that they're saying stuff about themselves that's not good. Oh, I say the wrong things. Oh, I'm stupid. And you might get the sense, hey, somebody's telling them this and they're repeating it. But there's no one sign that you can look to. And this violence can take so many different shapes. It can be emotional, physical, mental. It can be all kinds of things. So I'd also say it's really good for you to be proactive with somebody and say, hey, if you need anything, reach out to me. I won't judge you. I'll help you. Okay, let's say I've picked up on what I think are the signs that that I think a family friend or, or someone in my own family is in a dangerous situation. How do you approach that very first conversation? Well, I think it's really important to take a step back, take a deep breath, give yourself some space to just think about how you would broach a subject to somebody. You can speak from your own perspective. Use I statements. You can say, hey, I noticed that maybe you might be going through something, or I'm wondering how you're doing. What you can do as well is think about where you're having this conversation. Of course, somebody who's abusive can be really watchful on somebody who they're abusing. They can monitor their devices. So you can also ask a question like, is this a good time to talk? Or are you by yourself? When you have a moment, please give me a call and you can broach it carefully with this person, recognizing that they might be highly watched and speak from your own perspective. I see that you might need some support. Listen, I'm here for you when you're ready to talk. They may want to reach out to you later, but at least they know you're there. It sounds like building trust and creating a space of safety are really key when starting this conversation. I think that's so important. Yes, thank you for saying that. I think... You know, sometimes I wonder, what have I said to people in my life, being sometimes a careless talker, what have I said that made them feel maybe that I'm not particularly supportive, or if they came to me, I would try to take over or say something that is uh, judgmental. So I've actually had to go back to friends and family that I have a relationship with, and I'm wondering, hmm, might they be going through something tough? I've had to say, listen, I know I might have said some weird things before, but I'm just going to tell you now, if you need my support, I will be there for you. I will not judge you. I will do whatever you need me to do. Just recognize that I'm here for you. And I've been amazed at how people have come back to me even years later and said, thank you for saying that. I think I need your help now. Well, here is someone who did have an expression of the need for help. Before the show, we spoke to Adele. She grew up with a violent stepfather, and she has a question about how others could have stepped in safely at the time. The town we lived in was so small that everyone knew each other. And I think because of that, there weren't many people that would stand up to someone like my mom's ex because he was pretty violent. Uh, he, He went to jail 
twice, I think, in the 90s over violence-related things. And I think just that fear of, of doing anything when you know that this person is living in the same town as you and you will run into them all the time, I think that fear made it so that people didn't stand up to them ever, even if it was affecting all of us. There was one time when someone tried to step up in the small town, but word got out that they had said something. And so he confronted them about it. Like, what resources are there for not the people directly affected, but those who want to help? Like, is there any safety net for them if it backfires on them? What an important question. That's really about all those social pressures that are on a person when they when they need help. And exactly what you were talking about, Andrea, um, about us not knowing sometimes just how many blocks there are for getting help. How would you answer um, this question? Well, first of all, I appreciate this, this insight here. And when you're in a small town, small community, it can be that everybody knows everybody and everybody could be afraid of this person. So I think, you know, you center on the person who you think is being hurt is so important. Of course, if you feel this person is in immediate danger, you, you get a sign, oh my gosh, something awful is going to happen. You can call 911, you can call authorities. But I always say with this caveat that sometimes calling the authorities or, um, you know, trying to tell somebody to leave an abusive relationship can increase the risk of violence for that person. So it's always important as much as possible. You let that person tell you what they need, take the lead. And the second thing I would say, you know, I would never want to tell somebody that it is not a risk to speak out about violence or say something to a friend or a family member who's going through violence. It is a risk. It's It could be an emotional risk. It could be that, yeah, you might get you might hear something back. You might get a bit of blowback. So I think it's important to know two or three places in your community that you can refer the person who's being harmed to go to. So let them know the places and hopefully they'll be able to reach out and get the help of an expert, somebody who knows what they're talking about and can help that person with a safety plan and supports. You know, as I was preparing for this conversation with you, Andrea, I read a lot of um, first person um, essays and people speaking about what it was like for them in abusive relationships. And something that uh, that last caller was speaking about, this kind of ecosystem that gets set up around a person uh, mm. that can shut down their their willingness or their feeling of strength or their feeling of safety and reaching out for help. It seems that it's not just about the person who's abused and their abuser, but also this world that a person might be trapped in. Is that something that you see as well? Oh, my goodness. I mean, we hear this all the time. Um, the, you know, the Canadian Women's Foundation supports these programs that are anti-violence, violence prevention programs, sometimes shelters, sometimes crisis lines, and all number of programs. And what we hear just across the country is this notion of many times people feeling like abusers have more supports and more networks for them. And the people being abused are intentionally isolated by the abuser and then people rally around them that is tough that is hard so i would just like to say that anybody who's listening now and knows somebody who might be going through a tough time your intervention your caring ear your kindness your knowing of a few places where somebody can go for help and your willingness to be there for that person is life-saving. Andrea, I'm going to go to a caller who is on the line with us right now, Charlene McKinley. Hi, Charlene. Hi. Hi. You're calling from Prince George, BC. Thanks so much for, for calling in today. What's your question for Andrea? 
I'm wondering how it how it has changed um, in over 30 years. Like it's been over 30 years since I left a domestic abuse violent uh, marriage, and uh, how much it has changed with the government and systems for helping women. I know with me, I um, I did have help, and uh, the children and I were put in a motel room. We were in a small town, too, but uh, we got out, and uh, with the help of friends and family. But um, I'm just wondering what resources uh, are available that weren't available, say, 30 years ago. What have you seen over the course of time? You've been in in anti-violence work for a very long time, Andrea. Have you seen an evolution and access to different kinds of resources over time? I have. And thank you so much for sharing that, uh, your situation, that you were able to get out with the support. I think there's a lot of things that have changed for the better. First of all, tons more by way of community-based programs and services compared to 30 years ago. You know, it was women's groups, it was feminists, it was anti-violence activists who started the first shelters in Canada, the first crisis lines, and they didn't do it with very much governmental support. Now we see that more government bodies, more services that are run by different organizations understand the dynamic of gender based violence, that it can be physical, it can be emotional, it can be things that happen in intimate partner relationships, it can be in families, it can be in workplaces and in the community that you're in. So there's far more understanding, more services, I believe, and we've seen good outcomes happen. But I also balance that with the fact that gender-based violence, all the different forms, sexual, emotional, physical, they're still at very high rates. 44% of women experience some form of violence from an intimate partner in their lifetimes, and rates of femicide have increased to the point that a woman, a woman or girl is killed by an intimate partner every 48 hours. The risk is higher for Indigenous women, for women with disabilities, young women, anybody who numbers. might experience higher vulnerability. It's, it's just wild. And I think that the need is so great. So even though we're seeing really great moves in the right direction, I think we need to see far more. Now, we do have this national action, action plan being um, funded by the federal government and the provinces and territories have agreed to it. Remains to be seen what this is going to do for people in their own communities, in their own lives. I feel hopeful, but I also think the investment has to be huge. And it is an all of society approach, not just some services, not just the government. It's for all of us to be able to act on. It's very, it's so sobering what you're saying, Andrea, because you're saying there's of course, been advancements, but we need to to stay the course. Um, Charlene, I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I, I hope you won't mind if I also ask you a question. Would that be okay? Sure. So as somebody who, as you said, left um, a situation of domestic violence 30 years ago, we're talking here about some of the most um, important things that we can say and the support that we can provide. Is there something that you really needed to hear or something that you heard from somebody at that time? Mm. Was there a support that somebody provided for you uh, that changed things for you, that, that made you feel like you could leave? For me, um, I witnessed it as a child, so I thought it was normal. So one of my friends said, I thought that her husband hit her. And she said, no, he's never hit me. And so there, I had friends that had um, healthy uh, relationships, 
and they were the ones that guided me through. I was guided to counseling, a marriage counselor. He said there was nothing wrong with him. It was all me. So I continued to see the marriage counselor, and eventually, after two years of counseling, I asked for a divorce. And, um, yeah, it, uh, it was step by step by step, and, uh, but I will say this, that had I stayed, he could have killed me. Mm. Well, that's it. So I wouldn't be alive today if I didn't have the help and support of my family members and my good friends that I've had for <laughs> years. I'm so grateful for your story, yeah. Charlene. Thank you so yeah. much for calling in, for telling us a little bit about your life and what a sense of inner justice you must have to have gotten yourself out of that. Amazing. Definitely. And I am single and happy. <laughs> <laughs> I wish you every luck and, and yes. happiness. Thank you so much, Charlene. Thank you. Wow, Andrea, stories like that must just ring for you so loudly because they're the moments of, of escape. They're the moments of survival. Um, you listen to a story like that and it must it must feel like everything you do is worth it. Oh, my, my heart just just burst there with joy. So happy to hear Charlene is, is doing well. And I think there's such an insight in what you shared there because seeing a healthy relationship um, understanding that there's something uh, better and different out there. Some of us have to learn that. And I know what it's like to have learned things that I had to unlearn. I think all of us know that. I used to think that uh, healthy relationships where somebody was always calling you, always bugging you, always knowing where you are. And I had to learn that that is not a healthy relationship. Somebody has to see me as a whole person and see themselves as a whole person and respect me. I learned that as a kid and I'm not the only one. So I just think that it just has to start from young and it has to go all through the lifespan. And we have to remember that it can happen in all kinds of circumstances, that there's nobody who's immune. We have we were just talking to Charlene about something um, that happened in her own life, but also what she mentioned was the number of good friends that were there and really mm -hmm. walked with her, you know, side by side with her as she escaped a violent marriage. But what should you do if someone who you're not close to, but you you sense that thing that you were talking about earlier, the sensing that something here is wrong? Maybe they're an acquaintance, maybe they're a colleague who you do see every day, but you don't actually know that well. If you sense that they're an abusive in an abusive situation, but you don't don't want to overstep. You don't want to pry. How can how can we be supportive of that person? Well, I get it. You know, it's a it's a little tough sometimes. I, I would never say that it's going to be easy. But I think about, for instance, a work situation. I've worked with people who I wasn't super close with and didn't do a lot of work directly with, and I just got a sense that they were struggling at home, and I wasn't sure what it was. So because I had some level of authority at work, I was in a management position, I was able to reach out to them and say, hey, um, I just want to remind you about our employee assistance program. And, you know, we have these mental health supports. We have these other supports you can uh, reach out to if you need anything. And let me know. You know, it's not unprofessional to ask for help. I actually had to say that. 
So many people feel, and a lot of them are made to feel this way, that it's unprofessional to ask for help. I hope this is changing now in workplaces, but I think it's really important for those who have some level of management authority to also proactively go and tell their employees and kind of live it and, and to walk the talk the walk, walk the talk, and be able to say, listen, these are resources that are available to you, and I will support you. Um, you let me know. So there's lots of different ways to go about it, but I do think the key message is to put yourself out there as a supportive person, a non-judgmental person. I think you might be amazed at who might take this on. And I think particularly of people who might be going through difficult situations with abusive partners or abusive families. These these folks are often looking for somebody to just validate and support them. And so often they're told that they're alone. And if they leave the situation, they're going to uh, you never have anybody else. And it's just not true. Let's live like that's just not true and be proactive about saying that. I'm going to continue um, asking here about the the situations where we're, we, we don't know each other. We're not friends. We're not close. Um, we have a caller on the line, Rhonda Cerno, who is wondering about uh, the hand signal. Can you explain what you mean, Rhonda? And hello. Hello. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> um, yes, there were some ads on TV uh, quite a while ago now, <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, that... Uh, there is a hand signal that women can use if uh, they are in an abusive situation and they're wanting to reach out for help, but they don't want to uh, verbalize um, that, uh, you know, that reaching out. So um, what I learned was that uh, then you would raise an, uh, an open hand, um, the, the palm facing the person you're talking to, and then uh, take your thumb across the hand and then close your other fingers over the thumb to create a, a fist that way. And that, that's a nonverbal way to say, I'm wanting help. Now, the ads were focused on, um, you know, a woman sitting at a computer talking to a friend um, on a Zoom kind of call. And so they're able to to do that hand signal, but I imagine I'm, you know, oh, and I, I, I think, um, I also, yes, I also heard of a situation where a woman did that uh, through the window of a car, and uh, that that is, uh, yeah, that is supposed to be a signal that women can use to say I'm, I'm wanting help. And so um, I wanted to put that out there that this is what I've learned, particularly because this is a national program and a number of people obviously then will be listening uh, just as an as an education um, call and I guess the other uh, question that I have is that if um, someone does that uh, what would be the best way to follow up if they're if they are communicating that signal to you Rhonda, thank you so much for for sharing that with us. And uh, and you're quite right that that signal uh, has been widely spoken about. Not everybody knows about it. So thank you right. for for talking us through it, um, Andrea. That is um, the the way that this the signal goes: thumb across and then close the rest of your fingers around it. 
You got it. Thank you so much, Rhonda, for explaining that. I'm so happy you said something. The Signal for Help is something that the Canadian Women's Foundation launched a few years ago, knowing that people are now using Zoom calls and video calls all the time, and they might be in a situation where an abusive partner is watching them, and they might need to say, I need you to check in with me safely. I need your help, but they might not be able to verbalize it. And that's exactly what the Signal for Help has gone viral for. People have used it in in lots of different ways. I've heard of several instances where women have gotten out of dangerous situations because they use the signal. So there's a couple of things I'll let people know. If you see the signal for help just out in the wild, I say, so out of a car, out of a door, a window, you see somebody doing it, you don't know the person, it is fair for you to call 911 or authorities in that situation. It means that person is in immediate danger. That's one thing. But the second thing I'd say, I feel that a lot of people might use this signal with people that they know. And they kind of say that they use it just to be able to signal, hey, I'm in a bad spot and I can't say it. So in that situation, I think it's important for you to reach out to them. However you can, you can text them, you can WhatsApp them, you can give them a call and say, hey, I'm here. Do, do you have time to talk? And that person can tell you, no, I can't talk right now, but I'll call you back. Or they might be able to speak. Maybe they're okay to talk. The person who's abusing them is not there. And there's some things that I think are important to know. Again, one or two places that a person can call. Know this proactively. Look it up from now. Know where you can refer somebody for help if they need your help. You can ask them, you know, do you need me to call 911 or authorities? They can tell you yes or no. You take the mm -hmm. lead from them. And also just be supportive. Be ready to continue supporting this person beyond that moment. Because sometimes it takes a while for people to figure out what they're going to do. And that's okay. They know what's best and you be there and support them in a non-judgmental way. Those three steps are so important. I can't stress it enough. Thank you so much, Rhonda, for bringing this up. Rhonda, thank you so much for calling in. Andrea, I can't believe how we've burned through the time. We only have a minute left. Um, I just want to ask about some resources and how we can work on skill sets to support abuse survivors. I really appreciate that. You know, when we put out the signal for help, we said a signal is only as good as its response. So I would encourage everybody go to signalforhelpresponder.ca. You can go to signal responder. If you can't remember that signal responder.ca, you can actually get free supports, just free resources, something you can download and have in your phone. And it tells you what you can do to support somebody if you see the signal for help. But you know, beyond that, it just helps you respond to any sign or signal of violence signalresponder.ca. That's the great place to start. And of course, look up in your area, two or three places where somebody can go for help. I think that's so amazing if you can do that and be that supportive person. If we all did it, gender-based violence could go down and we could actually move the needle on this awful epidemic of violence. Andrea, thank you so much for your, for your passion and for your knowledge and for all these skills that you just put in our pocket. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Andrea Gunraj is the Vice President of Public Engagement at the Canadian Women's Foundation. If you or somebody that you love is in danger, please do contact the crisis line in your province. You can also go to sheltersafe.ca. This is a service that connects people experiencing domestic violence or intimate partner violence with nearby shelters and support.
Oh, folks, thank you so much for all the incredible calls and questions. It really is so important to get into these topics together. This has been our second edition of Just Asking. Our show was produced by Rachel DeGasparis. Our studio director is Abby Plenner. Marco Luciano is our technical producer. Our digital producer is Sunisha Yolich. Our screeners are Kiara Greco, Chloe Kim, and Mackenzie Ribello. We also had production assistance this week from Ruxar Ali. Our senior producer is Yamri Tasputadesa. I'm Saroja Coelho. Thank you so much for calling in. Thank you for all of the thoughtful questions you wrote in. We are going to see you next Saturday. Have a great week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.